listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is Norbert Keil, a German filmmaker who is based in the city of Munich, operating an independent film production company. Norbert, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thank you, Craig. It's uh, great, great to be here. Well, nice to have you on. First question, what has been happening with filmmaking in Germany and how difficult has the virus been on the industry there? Well, I think it's pretty much the same like in the rest of the world. It's been, there's been a full stop to production when, when the first outbreak was like really happened in March. So for about three months, like zero, nothing happened. You couldn't get a permit to do anything unless you shot a private property and ignored all regulations. You were not allowed to like hire people and make them work together. Uh, so that was all illegal for a couple of months. And now it's it's where we're slowly uh, like baby steps. Uh, we're going back to where you can actually shoot. You still have to like divide the setup into uh, lots of zones. Your assistant will have to like radio some person outside. That person will get it from the trailer, hand it to another person inside the building. That person will only be allowed to go near the set and hand it to maybe your assistant. So it's become very time consuming, but they're making it happen again, uh, both indie wise and the big budget guys or TV shows. So how are the bubbles working, particularly around the the actors? So if you've uh, got a couple of actors working very intimately with each other on set, what's the protocols around that? Are you able to talk to that? Yeah, well, technically, they're like if you have an intimate scene, like, I don't know, like even a hug, technically... You're not supposed to do that. Uh, there's always the, the and there's different ways to people are approaching it. Some are actually trying out to green screen it, like even a kissing scene to green screen the kissing scene, which will be so weird. <laughs> I can't imagine how that would work. Then there's like, of course, the, the the old school way, like having clever angles and making people seem standing closer together than they actually are. And then just, I think, a bunch of people just don't care and just shoot it and just make the actors hug. Having worked with actors yourself, I'm sure you can testify to that. The actors really get into it. There's no stopping them anyways. You know, what are you going to do? So people that you know, other filmmakers, they're going down this path of not really adhering to those rules and just uh, doing it very independently and getting something shot that they need to. Yes, but most people that I know, they're doing the bubble thing. And my wife was actually shooting a TV show. She's been asked to do the green screen thing. If you get hired, then you should do that. Yeah, I think you always have to bend the rules a bit. Of course, because insurance is, is a problem anyway, as we know, especially yeah. around bonding a film. I don't think there's any insurance on the planet currently that's insuring against the COVID. Yeah, so you're really in trouble there. One production I heard of, they're actually, because they're shooting in the mountains between Germany and Italy, they actually sent everyone there three weeks prior to the shoot, putting everything, everybody in isolation, an entire team, like basically making sure, you know, if somebody had the virus, then of course, during the course of the three weeks, it would have shown. 
Yes, that's the problem is that it does add to the cost of the production, but there are many productions that are doing that, just isolating. And then after 14 days, we know that you're free to to shoot. Uh, Let's just come back to the German market prior to COVID-19. How difficult was it prior to the virus in terms of getting a film funded in Germany? In Germany, there's basically almost non-private equity. There, it's not a big thing uh, in Germany. Most films are being funded through government money, basically guarantees from TV stations, guarantees for theatrical distribution. That's the way that I'd say like at least 90% of all movies are being funded here. So for the producers, it's been, it's been a very risk-free environment. The indie scene, of course, does like they, I don't know, they take mortgage on your house. I have a friend who did that, actually uh, did that on his parents' house. Oh, no, on the parents' house. What happened? Yeah, well, they didn't make their money back. It's a terrible story. Sorry. Uh-huh. It's actually not funny, uh, but it's been like 15 years now. And everyone's still living and they're still talking to each other. But The good thing about the German government is it's very supportive of the film industry. I remember a few years ago, the government approved a 55% increase in the film funding for that year, which was 150 million euros. So quite supportive, the government. Yes, yes, very much so. Both for local and international product. The thing how the German funding always works is if they give you like 200k, you need to spend 300 in the state that they're they're giving it to you. So you need to bring only 100 yourself. If you can, basically, if you have that, that will give you the rest. They might give you up to two, two thirds of the budget. Like you said, the, the, the budgets are insane. The money that's there from the state side, every state in Germany has its own funding. And there's the German-wide funding as well. Then there's, and that's interesting for international productions. If you have a German co-producer and you spend at least a quarter of your budget in Germany, they will give you up to, I don't know, four to 10 million for your project. That's not talking indie anymore, of course. Traditionally, Germany has been a strong country for a number of co-productions between different countries. And I think obviously the the way that the filming fund is set up, that's very attractive for international co-pros to, to get going. Yes, totally. Because you can get so much money. And if you have a certain budget level and you fulfill a number of points, you get automatic funding from the state, as long as you have a local co-producer, of course. So let's start at the beginning, uh, Norbert, the beginning of your film career. How did you get started? Oh my God, how did I get started? That was so long ago. I've been making short films since I was in, in high school. When you were forced edit on two VHS recorders, yeah, so I always, always wanted to make films and tell stories and get people engaged, trigger emotions, because that's what I, what I always love about going to the movies myself. Like, it triggered my emotions. So I did short films all my life, and then I got into movie marketing to make a living. And then something very important happened, like a short of mine got selected for uh, Midnight Madness at the Toronto International Film Festival. And that was in a tie at a time when TIFF, didn't have a short program for international shorts. They only had Canadian shorts. So I was like in 25 years of TIFF history, I was like one of four exceptions that they had made. 
So I got to fly to Toronto. The film was shown at TIFF, and that con- the connections that I made there actually were instrumental in bringing my first feature, Replace, closer to being made. And like Colin Geddes, who used to program Midnight Madness, is one of the co-producers of Replace. He and his wife, they helped me so much in making this happen. Yes, in 2017, your film called Replaced is your first English language feature. The synopsis reads, Kira's skin starts to age rapidly. Her skin dries out and eventually crumbles away. Her life looks like it's going to be cut short in her prime. But then she discovers that she can replace her own skin with somebody else's skin. One film reviewer describes your film as an emotional confrontation of body image, self-identity, conflict, and cultural expectations wrapped in a slow-burning psychological thriller. Wow. So what spoke to you about the subject matter in wanting to create this film, Norbert? I was always terrified and I still am, of losing control over my own body, growing old. Uh, just fear of aging, it, it, it terrifies me every day. I have problems with my back since I was a teenager. So I always had that issue of pain and, and not being able to do certain physical things. That might be the reason for it, but yeah, basically replaced for me is about the fear of growing old and watching your body crumble away, give way, not function the way you expect it any longer. And I think most of us would be would be really tempted to do a lot of very uh, nasty stuff if they could stop their body's slow demise. Slow demise, that's uh, certainly what happens in the film. Yeah. <laughs> The film festivals seem to have loved your film. I think you got into around 16 festivals, including Fantasia and uh, Fright Fest. Tell us a little bit about the roller coaster ride that you've been on with the film and the way that the festivals were beneficial for the way that you got your film out there and watched. What can I say? The, The festival tour that I did with Replace was one of the best things in my life. Being able to watch the film with an audience who actually came to see what you created is so amazing uh, and hearing their thoughts however critical they might be and you can learn so much and can you can grow so much as a filmmaker reviews are what count and good word of mouth and fans people will follow you and look out for what what oh what's that guy doing next so it's so important to make to making your next film happen about also about man, I want to do my next film as well. Of course, you want to promote your film that you just did, and it's it's amazing and wonderful and gratifying, and you make a zillion connections. But those connections will always might always help you to pull up the next project. In terms of genre, psychological thrillers, the interpretation of an audience getting taken on this roller coaster of a ride, how surprised were you, particularly at film festivals around the Q&A after the film, getting the opportunity to talk to the audience and having some of their thoughts come back to you and you know that they've just picked it up and run with it in a different direction to how you imagined the film? But that's the cool thing, right? You, you go to these festivals and you hear people's perceptions and thoughts on what they take away from the film. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes it's the weirdest stuff. Like, I think one of the one of the funniest things I ever that I heard was I really didn't like the ending. 
why why didn't they just go on the bike and and uh, get get on the bike and you know drive away? Yeah, and I was like, okay, <laughs> that that would have been rather unspectacular. But I liked what I really liked about it that that person obviously cared so much. He did like he was like I was really furious at the ending. You know, no, I didn't like that. Why couldn't they just you know get on the bike and just leave? And you wrote the screenplay with Richard Stanley. Talk me through the process of working with another screenwriter who is also a director and how your workflow operates in that dynamic. The project, when it first originated, uh, it was a German script. Um, and with my producer, we, we thought we wanted to do this in German. And it became pretty clear pretty fast that that was not the wisest way to go about this. So we said, okay, we'll, we're going to do this in English uh, as we develop the script. So pretty early on, we did an English version, which totally sucked. Um, was the translation was terrible. Then again, I'm not a native speaker. So we were looking for someone to, to a polish the script in English. And then again, like Colin Geddes, so he said like, man, you really should look for someone who also might be able to bring experience and bring uh, more than just a polish to the table. And of course, as a screenwriter, and especially if you're doing you know, like your Earth's first English language film, you, you're like, I, like, at least I was a bit scared, like, man, you know, someone's going to take my script away from me. And, you know, and so when Karim Hussain, who's a friend, he's a DP, suggested, why did you ask Richard? And I'm like, Richard who? And he said, hey, Richard Stanley, like I just shot a short with him. And he did a documentary with him. And I was like, get out of here. I, I was like a fan, I still am, of Richard's work since I, was, since I was a teenager. Like, I love his films. He lives in France, so it was not that far from me. So I drove down there and we spent a weekend going through the entire script. I explained my intentions. He criticized a lot of stuff and gave his notes and we discussed everything and as soon as i had met him i felt super comfortable because already then i felt like oh man he he will not take anything away from me he will give me the best present in the world he will make this even better which is awesome and that what happened so uh, a couple of weeks later he sent me his first draft and and again i think i i, I drove down again so we said we sat together went through everything discussed his changes uh discussed more changes so the script uh, developed and grew from that, and it was one of the best things ever, really, the collaboration with another screenwriter. Uh, I love it. And that's why I've been doing it since then. Uh, I keep doing it. I keep co-writing with, in the best of worlds, always with Richard. We work very well together. I think it's a very good example of you just never know sometimes somebody that's got a lot of experience, filmmakers starting out think, well, they're just unapproachable. Uh, why would they be interested in my project? But unless you pick up the phone or you sit in front of the computer and ask the question, they may very well be interested. Uh, they may respond to the material and suddenly you find that you're engaged with some dialogue around meeting up with this person, sitting down, having a coffee, chewing through what your story's about. And next minute, uh, suddenly you're working on the script and then it just develops and unfolds from there. So my suggestion is that if there are filmmakers that have people in mind, always ask the question. Oh, yeah, I would totally subscribe to that. Yeah, do it. Go there. Ask 
and it will always make like because you don't have to and that that's the the fun thing that i discovered in the end you know in the very very end you don't have to take on board what uh, somebody else gives you but uh, i always considered it like i said a gift and a, and a great contribution and without richard the film wouldn't be as as good for me he made it so much better i wouldn't want to miss that there's this diffused look of the film for a, a great part of it. What were you doing? What was happening there? Was that a was that something in post that came in, or was it something that you were creating in camera? Oh, uh, tech wise, you mean? So I sat down with my DP quite early, and we discussed, and we watched a lot of films and discussed the intentions like the, uh, for every scene visually, and we tried to find basically find a look for the intention, for the mood of the scene. So that's why the first, especially the, like the first 15, 20 minutes are super glowy and diffused and not really out of focus, but they're so glowy sometimes that they, it seems like it's out of focus because she's just so, she almost lost her mind in the, in the beginning. She's just slowly grasping reality. So what we did is we did everything in camera. We used two filters in front of the camera and special lenses that help with that effect. And, and Tim did a bunch of tests with different lenses and different filters to achieve that look. In the last third of the film, we used very different lenses and very different filters. Yeah, I thought that that was done really, really well. You've got, I think it's around 10 minutes into the film, you've got a long one which is between the two female leads and uh, very well executed. It goes on for some time. I didn't run a stopwatch across it. Quite a simple move backwards and forwards on a, a dolly and then tilting up, tilting down. But that was quite a dance that they were doing to camera. And obviously it took a, a lot of time to work through that one to, to make sure that all those pieces came together. I always loved that shot. I, I, I had to fight hard for it because, of course, those, those things are time-consuming, as you as you said. And but we rehearsed a lot. Those couple of minutes that that oneer covers were done in half a day. So it took you half a day to shoot that oneer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And coming back to the workshopping with the actors, how much of that did you do before you went into production? Um, Again, I got really lucky with, with, with finding Rebecca and we had auditioned 200 actresses before we selected Rebecca. She was very eager to come over quite early. It's a one woman show almost, uh, the film. The producer agreed that if she would agree to that time not being paid fully, so we only had to pay for her uh, like, like living expenses. So I had the amazing luxury of talking through every scene and talking about everything and she already came prepared with a life history of that woman a zillion things that i had never written richard had never written and she had just come up on her own with it which was brilliant a brilliant foundation to work with and then we rehearsed physical rehearsals went on for two weeks with uh with lucy and her and that would be why Lucy and Rebecca just on camera, on film, they just look quite relaxed with each other. So if you're spending that much time in prep, uh, working the rehearsals, that really does pay off. It does show on screen. 
Yeah, oh, yeah. I would, I would fight really. I would really, 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 really fight uh, to to have that again. Uh, and I can only recommend try to do rehearsals if your actors are willing. Again, there's so much new stuff that'll just happen. That'll just you know, creativity will just explode, and you will just watch your actors take a scene and change it around and make it drastically different, but sometimes drastically better. I can only recommend it. It's a lot of fun. And to me, the collaboration with other creative people is what this is all about. So that was super fun. Let's have a look at the music score, especially for something like Replace. How much of an emphasis did you put on the music to heighten key moments in the film? A lot. And I think a lot more than currently being done, in, in, at least in mainstream cinema. I convinced my composers to um, do the music before we actually shot the film. Of course, not the not the specific scoring, you know, to every small small mood change in the scene, but all the scenes, music-wise, existed before we shot anything. So during production and during prep, actually, I was able to to play music to both the team and, of course, the the actors. Which for the team was super motivating, I think, because they, they, they felt that they were really being involved and they were really, we shared a lot, stuff that a team usually doesn't get. And it helped the actress tremendously, of course, to know what, what we were going for. I think you can tell from some scenes in the film that I'm a big fan of Suspiria. I looked at that with my composers as well. And sometimes the music in, in Suspiria tells its own story. I tried to use that concept for a couple of scenes. It was quite interesting to work that way because yeah, usually the music is only, in quotations, you know, supportive, but not telling its own thing. So with the music and being able to bring that in so early, as you mentioned, you did your workshopping, your rehearsals so early, it does operate, the music operates on a, a level that might be subconscious that the actor won't necessarily tell you about, but I'm sure that when you first introduce that music and you're playing that music prior to workshopping a scene with the actors, that it just elevates, it just lifts something. You can feel something happening as a result of the music. That's true. As I remember Hira in the film like approaches her first victim. I played the music to Rebecca, the actress, before, like during rehearsals, because she always wondered, like, okay, how we, how would this happen? How would this, this whole scene feel? Would it be very, you know, slam bam, like the slasher version of Born Supremacy fight, or how would it be? And I played that music to her, and I was like, okay, your character is actually the total opposite of the music so the music is very super fast and super like driving is basically music's what's in your head i think that was the moment when it when she understood what i was going for that's when she was able to really really slow down as an actress and just take the slow the flow very 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 slowly so in that case that really really helped uh to illustrate the point yeah and as well as a working writer and director, you also founded and built Germany's leading trailer company over the past 10 years called Trailer House, starting with Academy Award winning Nowhere in Africa. You also worked on Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof and films like The International, Perfume, Finding Nemo, Juno 
and the raid, as well as more than 400 other campaigns for clients like Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers and Sony. What made you start Trailer House? How did that all come about? Doing trailers is just a, a ton of fun. Uh, I can tell you, and uh, to make a living, uh, it's one of the most fun things that you can do apart from making films, of course. But since financing a film is so terribly hard, especially if you're starting out, you don't get to make a movie every year and probably not going to make a salary every year that you can live on. So that's why I got into movie marketing. Of all the things that you do in movie marketing, doing trailers uh, was, to me, the most fun. I learned the editing trade. In a trailer, you also learn how to really nail your story beats because a trailer is only about the beats and there's nothing you know fancy around it. It's just story beat, 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 beat. And then you have basically big music and, and fancy images. And you get to look at so many films, learn from that because you analyze every film. Uh, you have to always look for the essence in that film because the essence is going to be, it's going to be the trailer. So you're doing a backwards thing you're creating an elevator pitch of a finished film, which sometimes is rather hard, depending on the quality of the film, of course. <laughs> it's pretty cool that a filmmaker has a trailer company, gets to make all these other trailers for other films, and then go about making his next film. I mean, we hear of filmmakers doing all sorts of uh, different works on the side, but a trailer company, that's one I've, I've never heard of before. Again, it's really, really useful, uh, but only never do, I, and I didn't do it, never do your own trailer because it, it will it will not be the, it might work, but it will not be the best trailer it can be. No way, uh, because you're much too connected to your own material. If you're doing a trailer, you have to be super brutal, even more brutal than you have to be as a director in the editing room. So working on the marketing side, that would explain the poster because the poster for replace i really liked i thought that that was beautifully done for its simplicity and can imagine that that went through a lot of revisions before it landed where it did so obviously poster marketing trailer all those pieces very important process for you to get the imagery right yes absolutely and that poster actually existed i think three years before we started shooting only in an all-white version with natural skin tones. And of course, not with Rebecca, but with a stock image model. And we just grafted, we did a, uh, we did a shooting for the effect and like in Photoshop grafted the effect on, onto her and went out with a poster. And what we did is we went with that poster with a mood trailer that we, like a grab piece. We went to Cannes and we showed people the poster and they reacted like you did. They were like, this is nice. And then we were like, oh, we also have a trailer. And they were like, oh, okay, I want to watch that. And then they really liked the trailer. Again, it really helps if you know how to do a trailer. So that opened a lot of doors, a lot of doors. And the image just stuck with us through the entire production and post-production. And when it came to, okay, now we need the actual real poster with Rebecca, we gave it to a graphic, a graphic designer. And they did an exploration. They came up with actually an additional 20 other potential posters, but everyone, including the graphic designers, agreed that the original one just grasped the idea of the film. Yeah. And if people are wanting to see that, we'll leave that in the show notes, the poster and also the, the trailer. 
Norbert, what is your next feature? Yeah, if COVID have, hadn't happened, <laughs> I think I would be shooting one of them right now. One is called Reunion, set in a similar world to replace. It again addresses very basic human fear. In this case, not the fear of aging, but the uh, fear of being alone and alone in the world, the loneliness. And it's, of course, about Siamese twins. So yeah, this will be an American um, Irish co-production. Ireland has a similar funding system like Germany, and they have two wonderful producers there. So they're co-producing. And um, yeah, we were we actually in casting, and we still are technically, but of course nobody nobody's reading independent projects now. Since you cannot give anyone a shooting date, why would you bother to read when basically you're independent? Your pitch to an actor, to a name actor is always, oh man, like we're shooting, you know, in, in spring, do you have time for four weeks? And then they have to, like the project, they will, they will do it. But since now, uh, currently we, like we talked about earlier, uh, we, do, we don't have anyone to insure us. So we kind of move ahead. Yeah. Kind of move forward. Mm. Yes. The unstable times that we live in. Thanks for your time talking to us on Shoot It Now. I think that's given us a pretty good insight into uh, what you've been doing and what is coming up. And uh, I wish you all the best for the next 12 months. Thank you, Craig. It's uh, great, great to be here. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.